On a recent show, SNOP expert Bob Stahl mentioned Laura Cesare. That led me to revisit one of her books in my Kindle library. It's called Supply Chain Metrics That Matter, which was released in 2015. To say Laura's a supply chain thought leader, well, that's an understatement, and she never needs an introduction. She's the founder of Supply Chain Insights, and she has more than 230,000 followers on LinkedIn. I'm Mark Gandy. We'll be talking to Laura about her extensive research and her book. And again, that's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. Anytime I meet a person like Laura, the first thing I have to ask is, how did you get started? Laura's origin story, it's very fascinating. been in supply chain since mid-1970s, before supply chain actually got a name in 1982. And I started in manufacturing as a manufacturing co-op at Procter & Gamble, uh, dealing with how do we reduce the standard deviation of Pringles going across the salter and make sure they don't break in the cans. And it was a fun job and loved it. it, was chemical engineer. And I was always that kind of, you know, let's make a difference, let's make a change. And so people put me on a lot of technology projects and implementations. So, you know, long story short, I went from Procter & Gamble to General Foods, did new product launch for General Foods and uh, introduced a product called Pudding Pops and Stovetop Stuffing uh, in the United States, bought equipment, installed it, did network design, and then implemented VMI at Clorox for uh, Walmart and really thought, VMI would do a lot for the industry, and Clorox was going through a lot of transformation. So they asked me to go run a warehouse, which was very eye-opening for me because I'd always done manufacturing, and you know I was really pretty, I guess, high <clears throat> expectations that what I knew in manufacturing would translate to distribution. But it was very humbling to learn that you know I had to learn new skills and that managing, you know, 122 truckloads out of 18 doors a day was quite a feat. And anyway, I went from Clorox to building uh, distribution centers and uh, rolling out direct store delivery processes for Dryer's Grand Ice Cream in Southern California. And along that way, every company I was working for was trying to do something new and cool. And they had a new technology. And somehow I ended up being picked for a lot of those projects. And I wasn't the easiest to work with on those projects because I was always pushing IT really hard and have actually, you know, apologized to a couple of those IT directors because, you know, at that point in time, technology was a struggle, right? You know, this is early 32-bit software, client server. You know, we hadn't really fine-tuned what warehouse management and transportation management would look like. So I cut my teeth on some of that early software and then got picked up by a supply chain planning company called Manugistics, which later was acquired by JDA uh, and worked on forecasting and supply chain planning and implemented a number of clients and then went to a company called Gartner Group. And Gartner didn't care as much about supply chain as I did. So I went to a company called AMR Research and AMR got sold to Gartner. And I'm like, well, I've got to start my own firm. So I basically do research in the space. I sit on a database of 15 years of financial data, and I'm tracking the choices that people made and correlating them to financial results to try to answer 
how do we improve the supply chain? And for me, the supply chain is the process from the customer's customer to supplier's supplier. And one of the things that I find very sad is that sometimes people try to make supply chain as a function within a functional silo of logistics or deliver. And I really think about supply chain holistically. So does that help, Mark? Oh, absolutely. It seems like early on, just hands-on experience, you were picking up some of these eureka moments or aha moments that maybe your peers just did not see. Is that correct? You're probably building these frameworks in your mind. It's like, this is so simple to me, but other people just aren't getting it. Was that kind of what you experienced years ago? Well, I feel very fortunate that I worked for a number of companies uh, because I think the differences in the organizational models of the companies and their definition of supply chain, even though they didn't have words for it, but their definition of manufacturing, their definition of logistics were so different. That was really very helpful for me to experience. And then for me to move from a manufacturing distribution environment uh, to a software company was very humbling because I thought, you know, I knew a lot about supply chain and knew a lot about technology. And when I got to building software, I found out I had a whole lot to learn. So that whole journey has been full of Laura, you know, failing forward, learning a lot, experiencing a lot, questioning her own models. And I feel very fortunate to have such a diverse background. You said that supply chain, that term had not been around back in the 70s. I think in the preface of the book, Metrics That Matter, uh, that term first came about in 1982, we'll just say early 1980s. So 40 years later, are we better off with supply chain? I mean, I'm surely we are, but are we still lagging? Are there still a lot of improvements to be made? Well, Mark, every year I do a supply chain to admire analysis where I look at the intersection of operating margin and inventory turns, and I look at the intersection of growth and return on invested capital. And 94% of companies, public companies, are not making improvement. That's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, We made a lot more improvement in the 1990s when we had regional supply chains. Uh, We stalled out in the 2000 to 2010 period uh, where we went from multinational to global and only 9% of companies design their supply chains. And so what happens is we've got network design teams that are designing the supply chain, looking at form and function of inventory and flows. And then we've got strategy documents that are often happening in the strategy office and the two never meet. And the supply chain is a complex nonlinear system where people need to make conscious choice And one of the opportunities are people aren't deliberate enough about connecting network flows to strategic planning and giving people guidance of how do we connect source, make, and deliver together holistically. I was reading the 2020 supply chains to admire. I was shocked when I saw that Dollar General has been mentioned or won four times in Walmart only twice. I had to reread that. Well, Walmart's done a lot of things well. Uh, Retail Link is one of the few successful networks. uh, And they used Retail Link to give point-of-sale data and to really work on flows to their stores. However, in the 1980s and uh, the last decade, you know, Walmart's really struggled to drive margin. uh, And, uh, you know, they did not compete well with Amazon They operated uh, the e-commerce sector as a separate division, not a lot of clarity between the e-commerce and the stores and the bricks and mortar. And 
One of the things I think Dollar General and Dollar Tree did well was they redefined the format for the dollar conscious shopper. And I think Walmart didn't really redefine the format uh, very well uh, and uh, redefine the strategy. If you don't mind, I want to turn our attention to Metrics That Matter. That's the book. It came out in 2015. Uh, by the way, the book, I mean, it's it has a, a lengthy shelf life. There's nothing there's nothing dated in there, at least in my opinion. Great read. It has a, a gold rat feel uh, to it. So it's it's in a novel-like format. And again, it's a great teaching tool. So I'm, I'm recommending that book to everyone. So I just want to hit some of the, the highlights uh, in the book. Uh, you mentioned that nine out of 10 businesses are stuck uh, with moving the needle with their supply chain improvement processes. Is that still the same five, six years later? For the last one and a half decades, that is the case. And one of the issues is people don't tend to look at the intersection of the metrics because supply chains are complex nonlinear systems. And if you look at the metrics in an Excel spreadsheet, you don't see the connection and the patterns. And the book is a story of the patterns because to drive value and to look at market capitalization, you've really got to move a balanced scorecard forward of supply chain. So one of the things we did was we started out, we went to uh, Arizona uh, State University and great statisticians, and we took 190 metrics that are possible uh, through an aggregator that we call Y-charts. And we looked at which combination of metrics would give us the highest market capitalization for uh, public companies. And so we came up with growth, operating margin, return on invested capital, and inventory turns. And we started mining the patterns year over year of companies and looking at choices. And yeah, most companies are stuck. Let me revisit those metrics. And I'm calling them the big five year over year growth, operating margin, turns, inventory turnover, uh, return on invested capital, and then customer service. Mm-hmm. And is there maybe a sixth one? And and it goes to one of your recent blog posts about the uh, the types of people, the types of roles that are that are the most needed uh, currently in in the supply chain. And I was going to say people uh, finding good talent, getting good talent, and then and then keeping uh, good talent. But that big five, there's nothing that needs to be subtracted. There is there anything else that should be added? of those big five metrics? Well, I mean, you could add job satisfaction. We only find that one out of two supply chain leaders are satisfied with their jobs. And one of the big issues that supply chain talent has is the friction between finance and supply chain and the role of the budget and the fact that many financial uh, leaders are guiding IT strategies without a really good understanding of supply chain. And so we could add that. Uh, We could also talk that, you know, why are we not making progress, right? Because we've substituted metrics like cash to cash, which is a compound metric. And most people have elongated payables and not really focused on inventory. And we just push cost and waste back in the supply chain when we do that, Uh, you know, most people in supply chain focus on cost, not on margin, right? And, um, you know, I've had a lot of discussion with supply chain folks that, you know, we can't really drive value by just focusing on cost. So there's a whole lot to those metrics. And 
there's kind of a simplistic view that we can make trade-offs of cost, inventory, and customer service. And that is not a true statement, right? Because when you look at asset strategies, right, and you look at, you know, what you're doing with your assets to your growth strategies, you've really got to be managing all of these in a balanced scorecard and, um, you know, driving that and getting out of functional metrics like OEE, which if you're managing your supply chains through metrics like cash to cash or OEE, you're going to throw the supply chain out of balance and decrease value for shareholders. One of the concerns I have to or it's a concern I have when working with smaller businesses, and I'm trying not to laugh as I bring this up, but people who want to start measuring, they want to start keeping track of, of certain metrics. One question I will hear over and over, Mark, is this a good metric? Or there'll be a brainstorming session. And I kind of want to pull my hair out because I want to think, well, let, let's just look at all the key activities in your value chain Let's start tracking, measuring some of those, and let's see maybe where are there some gaps. In even some of your consulting work, Laura, in the past, what do you see some of the biggest mistakes are when people start measuring numbers other than these big five? Well, number one, people measure too many things, right? So I was at a sales and operations planning meeting for Honeywell, and they had 55 metrics. And when they reviewed 55 metrics, they never got to the after action review. And there was never any connection of the metrics to the strategy. So number one, measuring too many things. Two, measuring functional metrics that are not really in alignment with the overarching value scorecard. So for example, you know, I could have purchase price variance and procurement I could do really well on purchase price variance and have a horrible total cost. The only 29% of people can measure total cost. And so if they look at functional cost, they will often uh, have an increase in cost because you really have to balance source, make and deliver to have the lowest total cost. So, and again, you know, OEE will throw the supply chain out of balance, which is a focus on operational efficiency. So, the book and the research that I've done, which I'm not a consultant, I'm a, I'm a researcher, you know, where I've gone back and I've looked at, you know, 650 companies and I've looked at how do we align metrics. The functional metrics should be all about reliability. It should be about forecast value add. It should be on time orders. It should be schedule adherence, first pass yield and manufacturing. It should be supplier inbound, you know, um, it should be all about reliability and the functions and they should roll up to corporate metrics, which are able to balance source, make and deliver outside in to the customers. And so that's what the book's all about. And that's what my research has been about. And that may sound simple, but it's hard because most people are very enamored with functional metrics. I may take a big whiff here. I may swing and miss. So I'm going to try here. I interviewed Bob Stahl a couple of weeks ago. J- just an incredible individual. He's a thought leader in, in SNLP. And he mentioned your name. And and as I was looking at, as I was revisiting your book this week on, you include Cotter's change model, management model, which I think is brilliant. I'm trying to figure out if when Bob heard you about 10 years ago at an event, you, you may have been talking about this because he has, he has created what's called the 10 
30-60 rule. And what that is, that he said, now, Laura didn't use these numbers, but we got the idea from her. And he every time he mentions it, he says, we got this idea from you. So when going through any type of corporate change, management change, 10% usually is derived from the software. 30% is the new processes, the new systems. 60%, it's all people. It's behavioral. It's getting people to do something differently. And he ascribes his 10, 30, 60 rule to some speech you did about 10 years ago. Is this maybe where you are bringing Cotter's change management model into the conversation when we start talking metrics? I listened to that podcast and I appreciate Bob mentioning me. You know, as an industry analyst, I interviewed about 300 different companies for SNOP research I did back in uh, 2005. And it was very interesting to me because I would ask the question, what does success look like and how would you rate yourself on success? Most people did not have a clear definition of success and most people did not rate themselves very highly, but they had very clear process definitions and they were on a fixed path to implement technology. And so I built this model around change management. It does reference the Cotter model and it's really about what drives value in your value chain and how do you align the organization to drive value. And, you know, that's not an easy discussion because people are not clear what value is. And most of the metrics are around functional, you know, opportunities. And a lot of them are heavily laden with bonus incentives and people can't get out of their own way. And so, yeah, Bob did pick that up for me. And so, you know, that's good. I always like it when people, you know, use my research. It's open source research. And I hope it helps people because I think it needs to be all about change management and, you know, what does good look like? And uh, if we reach that destination, um, what do we achieve for, you know, our companies, for our employees, for our shareholders? And why do we need to go on this journey? And I I'm amazed at how many companies I work with have implemented technology badly and have friction between the financial and supply chain organizations because they're not clear on the definition of value and supply chain excellence. And I've spent the last decade writing about that, and that's not an easy topic. So, yeah. Can you briefly explain the value uh, networks visualization from the book? Because, I again, I love that concept. The visualization of networks allows us to see flows of the networks, right? Uh, Most people look at transactions, right? And, you know, I actually think one of the things that took us backward in the last decade was a focus on transactional systems, the belief that ERP, you know, hardwire decision support to ERP and greatness would happen, and it did not. And the reason it did not is that people really need to be market-based, not necessarily inside out, you know, tightly tethered to the budget because the budget is out of date once it's published and the markets change a lot. So in COVID-19, we've seen a lot of changes in market. And so as we think about, you know, how we can sense opportunity, translate and adapt and align the organization, that requires us to really be outside in and market sensing and to be able 
to drive those horizontal processes of new product launch, sales and operations planning, revenue management, to be able to basically drive that balanced scorecard of growth, operating margin, inventory turns, customer service. And what I find is my clients cannot measure customer service, which I think is a travesty. Only 29% of people can see cost. 2% actually measure margin. Few people see supply chain as a driver of growth. And I'm like, okay, that's one of the reasons why we're stuck. Hey, let's wrap up here, uh, Laura. I appreciate your time. Tell us a little bit about supply chain insights. I, I look at supply chain insights as the Gartner, but of supply chain. Is that correct? Did um, I nail it? It's an analyst firm, right? Uh, and we do research. So I'm followed by 320,000 people on LinkedIn. And I use my LinkedIn group as a panel to do open source research. So when I was at AMR Research and I was at Gartner, we would always pay a third party to do research for us. So when we did that, we never knew who was filling out our surveys, which doesn't allow you to scrub for erroneous data, but also does not allow you to connect the choices that people make to financial results. So when we do a research study, we know who answers it. And then we basically will link to the financial data to look at what is the value of you know, what we're studying. And then we publish all the research open source. And so I think that's why so many people, you know, basically connect to me on LinkedIn. And my goal is to try to help people, whereas Gartner and Forrester and IDC put research behind a lock firewall. I basically distribute it for the world. And, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, I help somebody and the supply chain decision-making role to drive higher value. The information is just astounding. The reports especially are just over. I mean, they're great. And again, I know you, I know you hear that a lot. Uh, you have another website. It's a supply chain shaman. And I'm starting to slowly read through some of your blog posts. Uh, that's a great site. Well, some insights uh, with, with that site. Is that more, would you call it more personal? Well, you know, I I started the shaman before I started Supply Chain Insights. The shaman's read by about 25,000 people around the world. And I started open source blogging when I left AMR with, because I wanted to be more in the beat of, you know, people reading. And so I write the shaman for blog posts on the shaman. I try to do it weekly and it's really designed for supply chain leaders. Now I also write for LinkedIn and that's really designed for anybody that's in business. So it's kind of like lessons learned from this old gal, Laura. And I also write for Forbes. And what I try to do for Forbes is write to more of the financial uh, C-suite. So I'm trying to write to three different audiences and the shaman is much more research-based because supply chain leaders are kind of no nonsense LinkedIn's kind of fun and infographic and I tell the stories of where I stub my toes and kind of lessons learned on the road. And Forbes is really looking at current events and what's happening and trying to give guidance to executive leaders. So I try to write 3000 words a day and, um, you know, I'm trying to be a good writer. So the journey to be a good writer is, you know, a tough one. I, I think my writing's better today uh, the more you write, the easier it is, but um, that's what I do. 
Laura, your writing is good. Please don't, no, thank you. don't stop writing. And you say you're trying. It's again, you're, I, I'm enjoying it. And then you also do speaking around the globe, correct? Yes, I do. Yeah, I used to, right? I used to travel about 200,000 miles a year and I would speak at conferences and share the research and, you know, provoke audiences to think a little deeper about supply chain and its role for value. I haven't been on planes since March. I actually had COVID in March and I grounded myself. You know, I'm a 66-year-old woman. So, you know, it's like I don't need to be on an airplane. And I'm actually enjoying my gardening and my dogs. And, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to travel like I used to, but I do do speaking and I have podcasts and I have a YouTube channel. And, you know, I just try to connect with supply chain leaders in meaningful ways. Just know that 66 is the new 46. Don't forget that, Laura. <laughs> Laura, this has been great. And I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I read a lot. I read widely. I read deeply. And for some reason, even though I'd had your book, your name was not top of mind. Now it is. And so you've, oh, got, a, you. you've got a new raving fan. I mean, big fan. So uh, just a standing ovation to you, your work. And again, I love the book. Uh, metrics that matter. We'll mention your other books in the show notes. We'll list all the links to uh, your uh, your LinkedIn profile, the two websites. And again, thank you very much, Laura. Yeah, well, I'm writing a new book. Uh, I, you know, so I'm writing a sequel on uh, leadership matters. And uh, in the sequel, uh, Joe, who is the character in this book comes back, and he is promoted And he has to answer the question of, you know, how can he be a good leader to basically help his organization drive the adoption of the art of the possible and digital transformation. When does it come out? I'm just starting the writing. And so it probably won't be out. So this sounds horrible, early 2022. So uh, I'm just starting the writing now. And um, writing a book is like having a baby. It takes about nine months. (laughs) Uh, you know, and you've got to work, you got to write a chapter a month. Uh, and the whole thing around editing is like a root canal. So yeah, it's easier said than done. I hope to be one of your first customers of the book. Well, maybe I'll come back on the podcast and talk about it. Laura, again, thank you so much for spending time with us. You are just amazing, remarkable. Thank you for your work. You're writing, you're speaking, and even the way you make yourself available to so many people who are wanting to interview you. In my opinion, the best way to follow Laura is over on LinkedIn. That way you can easily follow her writing on her two websites and Forbes. We're going to call this a wrap. Again, I'm Mark Gandy. Thank you for listening. And this is CFO Bookshelf. (laughs) 